Romans 11. Let's grab our Bibles and turn to Romans 11. Romans chapter 11. And we're going to look at verses 7 through 11 this week. Going to advance the ball a little bit down the field here. Romans 11, 7, 11. All right, Romans 11, verse 7. 7 to 11 in chapter 11. What then, Paul asks, what Israel is seeking... It has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened, just as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. I say then, did they stumble so as to fall? Or they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Okay, now I just have to find my notes. Boy, I I really don't seem like I have it together here today, do I? Man. Oh, was it under the Bible or where was it? Oh, Oh, Mark... I pronounce a curse. The 49ers will lose today. (laughs) I don't know who they're playing, but they're going to (laughs) lose. He was just sitting there waiting until I realized. What a sick puppy. All right. Okay. Well, the opening idea today is that just as God spares a remnant, He hardens the others. Okay? This is hearkening this theme that we're going to see today in the opening verses, namely 7 to 10. This theme is not a new theme in this section of Romans. Just as God has chosen some, He hardens others. Do you remember where we covered that last time? What chapter of Romans? It wasn't that long ago. He chooses some, He shows them grace, vessels for honor, and He hardens the rest. Not six. If Jimi Hendrix had that song, if a six was a nine. Good, you don't listen to Jimi Hendrix, that was a test. So uh, in chapter 9, okay, turn that 6 upside down, Romans chapter 9. So we're going to go back to Romans 9 here in a moment, and we're going to look at uh, that section because it ties in very well with chapter 11 here. But last week, as Dean taught us from verses 1 to 6, we learned that God has furnished proof that He's not done with Israel. What has God left? What has God left? A remnant, that's the word, right? We were looking at that word a lot last week, remnant. And there will always be a remnant of Jews who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, won't there? There will always be a remnant. In fact, uh, Paul goes back in his argumentation back to Elijah and says, you know, Elijah was there and saying, hey, I'm the only one left. And God says, there are thousands more, right? And the remnant, as we're going to see as we continue through chapter 11, the remnant is a foreshadowing of what's to come for the nation of Israel. It's a down payment of sorts. It's It's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen Uh, to the nation as a whole. And now this week, we're going to learn that God is not just active inside the lives of those who believe. He's not just active in the lives of the remnant. But God's also active in the lives of those outside of the remnant. He's active in the way that He hardens. And so to get refreshed on this, let's do go back to chapter 9. And let's start at verse 18. And verse 18 is the key verse. But let's read from 18 to 24. Would someone like to read Romans 9, 18 to 24? 
Who can do that for us this morning? Romans 9, 18 to 24. Dean, go ahead. Okay, so we taught, I don't know, maybe three lessons on that section, from 18 to 24, something like that. So to get refreshed in depth, you can go back and you can listen to those files that we have online. But starting with verse 18, where Dean started with the passage, what is God actively doing to everybody? He's doing either one of two things, and what are they according to verse 18? He's either... There you go. He's either actively showing mercy to individuals or actively hardening. Okay? You see that in verse 18? Is there anybody that, is, that squeaks out of there and is in a, in a different group? Well, um, it doesn't say that. Okay? This is God's activity in the world. And as we get into our passage today, look again at verse 7, chapter 11, verse 7, and we see that God has chosen some from Israel, and those are the ones who are saved, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, and the rest were hardened. So is there a, a third group in Israel? Is there a third group of people who aren't saved? They're not hardened, but they're just some third category. Well, the Bible doesn't present that third category if there is one, right? So what we have going on in Romans 9 through 11, but particularly in chapter 11, is you have, of course, Israel being discussed. And this is, you could say, general Israel. This is uh, ethnic or national Israel, however someone wants to describe okay, Israel as a whole. And then what you have are two subsets of Israel. You've got, you've got those who are saved. You could say spiritual Israel. This, that's a term that we've used before. Spiritual Israel. And then you have hardened. Hardened Israel. And there are times where, especially in chapter 11, Paul will be addressing this group. Okay. He will be either addressing uh, this group. We'll just say that's group one. This group, we'll call that group two, or this group, verse three. And I shouldn't say addressing, he's speaking of one of these three groups. So we have to you know, try to figure out, okay, when he uses the word Israel, which group is he talking about here? And you can see the three groups at play all in verse seven. You can see all three concepts in verse seven. When he says, what then, what Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. It appears as though the Israel that he's referring to there is 
Israel as a whole, general Israel, what they have obtained, or what they were seeking, they have not obtained. But those who were chosen, that's group two, they've obtained it, and the rest, well, they're group three. They were hard. See that in verse seven? And so we have to kind of have this, this picture in our minds of what's going on in Israel, that there are some who are chosen, and the rest were hardened. And the big idea here is that Paul's not saying that it's merely possible for Jewish people to be saved. I don't think the Gentiles in Rome were, were saying, well, it's, it's impossible for any Jewish person to ever be saved because they are just totally cast away. I don't think that was their question. I don't think that was Paul's concern. I think what we're seeing, if you look at verse 1 that we covered last week, when, when Paul says, God has not rejected his people, has he? And then verse 11 that we're going to get to today they did not stumble, Israel, did not stumble, so as to fall, did they? I think Paul is telling them what's going to be happening with group number one here. I think Paul is telling them, okay, generally speaking with the whole, the general Israel, what's going to be happening to them as a whole? He's not trying to communicate to them it's possible that individual Jews can be saved. That's plain enough in their own church. But what is going to happen to Israel as a whole and what's happening to them now? So present and future, what's going on with Israel? Okay, any thoughts or questions on what I just said explained there before I continue? Making relative sense? Hope so. Even though I couldn't use my red marker? <laughs> Rex has clocked out the rest of the class now. That's... All right, well, let's back up to verse 5. Let's read verses 5 to 7 uh, to back up a little bit to where we were last week as we enter into explaining verse 7. Romans eleven five. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time, so we're talking now, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, okay, big picture, general Israel, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. So there's a remnant of Jews that have believed in Christ by God's gracious choice. And in verse 7, Paul starts off with this idea of they were seeking something. Can you remember what we've already learned in Romans, what Israel was seeking? Do you remember? Where, that's the right answer. Do you remember where it is? <laughs> in Romans, yeah, that's right. Okay, 10.3, and you could even back up to the end of 9. So from the end of 9 into the beginning of 10 is where we get this idea. Go back to verse 30, Romans 9.30. Answer the question, what is Israel seeking? Paul asks in Romans 9.30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing or seeking a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why not, verse 32? Well, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. Okay, and then you get down to chapter 10, verse 3, as Dean mentioned, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Israel seeking after their own righteousness through works. That's what they were doing. Talking, generally speaking. Now, there's always a remnant who was saved in Israel who weren't doing that, right? There was always a remnant. 
that believe by faith. But as a whole, Paul says, ethnic, national, general Israel, they were pursuing their own righteousness established by works. And they couldn't get it. And so God says, here is my righteousness on the basis of faith in Christ. And chapter 10, verse 3 says, they, they said, no, thanks. They said, no. They probably didn't say thanks. They said, no. <laughs> they crucified their Messiah, right? They didn't say thank you. They said, no. And so they have not obtained it. We can, we can understand, we can agree with Paul in, in chapter 11, verse 7. What they were seeking, they have not obtained. <laughs> because their, their whole approach is wrong. They're seeking to puff themselves up with their own works, to stand on their own works, and that doesn't work in God's program. But there is the chosen, this idea of the chosen, we saw it in chapter 11, verse 5, the remnant is according to God's choice. We see it in our verse today, chapter 11, verse 7, there are some that were chosen and they found righteousness because of their election, because God chose them. They have obtained righteousness. Is there any other reason why these Israelites are considered righteous? No. No. It's only by God's gracious choice that they have obtained the position that they're in. And so as we consider righteousness, we have to really go big picture now and think gospel, okay? This is personal righteousness, it said back at the end of chapter 9, Romans 9, that we just read, that they were seeking after a law of righteousness. So God's law says, okay, here's, here's what righteousness is. And they're saying, okay, for me, I have to become righteous, and this is the law of righteousness, so I'll just go do it. You just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. Tell me what hoops to jump through, and I'll do it. And what happens when someone tries to do that? Without exception? Oh, wow, they fail without exception. Yeah, that's the case. Even, it says in the book of Romans, again, all the way back in chapter 2, even those pagans, those Gentiles, who are a law to themselves, the, the, uh, sounded like uh, Yvonne, <laughs> <laughs> themselves, uh, those who are a law to themselves, are they able to keep their own laws? No, they're not. They're not. So what is that, what is that proving? Tell me, what's that proving when they fail over and over again? <laughs> okay, good. They're slow learners. Okay, why not? Why not? All right, okay. And this is what Paul labored to explain in the first three chapters of Romans, right? We got a sin problem. We have a major sin problem. No law can we keep. Go ahead, Amy. Because the law has to be adhered to 100% yep. your entire life. Yes. Never sin. Because what does James 2 say? James chapter 2, if you break one of the commandments, guilty of all. Right? Okay. So, if you seek to establish your own righteousness, as Israel did... Again, the end of chapter 9 into chapter 10. You're never going to be considered righteous. But probably my favorite verse in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became sin who knew no sin, that we may become the righteousness of God in Him. So how do we get that personal righteousness? If it's not through a law that we can keep, which means any works that we can do, 
How do we become personally righteous once for all time? Okay. Whose righteousness do we need? Yeah, that's a righteousness that exists outside of ourselves, isn't it? And so every system of works is conjuring up righteousness from within. And the Bible just says plainly in every way that you could say it, that's impossible. That is an impossibility. You need a foreign righteousness, a righteousness that exists outside of your own abilities, something that you could never, ever, ever do to be imputed or to be credited to your account. That is the baseline gospel message, isn't it? And so when it says here in verse 7 that Israel was seeking this righteousness and it did not obtain it, well, we know that's because they were seeking to obtain it by works. But those who were chosen obtained it. And it's not that they obtained it one day, they just woke up one day and God says, oh, you're righteous now, and then they move on. It's because they had a born-again experience. They came to faith in Jesus Christ. That's how they obtained it. Because they were chosen, they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ at some point in their life history, and now they are reckoned as righteous in God's sight. But it all started with God's gracious choice. That's the only reason they ended up in that position. They have a right standing with God now because God chose them, okay? So it starts with this idea of seeking righteousness. General Israel, they were doing it through works, broad brush speaking. They rejected their Messiah, but there's this remnant who believed because they were chosen. And the rest were hardened. And that's where Paul goes now for the next three verses. Now we're talking about, okay, we understand God was active in the lives of the chosen. Now what's the hardened? How did they get there? Well, because God's active in their lives too. And that's what this is about. So let me get some volunteers to take some passages. I need someone to take Deuteronomy 29, verses 2 through 4. Jerry, Deuteronomy 29, verses 2 through 4. Isaiah 29, 10. Isaiah 29, verse 10. Mike, very good. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 to 12. Joseph, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 8 to 12. And then Psalm 69, last one. Psalm 69, Rex, verses 22 and 23. Psalm 69, 22 and 23. So verse 7 teaches us that those who were not actively chosen by God were actively hardened by God. God was active in their lives to make them callous. That word for hardened means callous. Some of you who work harder than me know what calluses are. <laughs> you see those those hard things on, on your skin, and that's just real tough skin. And actually, that's something that you work for with guitar. That is a, a major point uh, of achievement when you're learning guitar because it hurts so much when you're practicing. Some of you have experienced that. It's like the string's just cutting into your skin. Well, eventually you get to the point where it doesn't hurt anymore because you've got these calluses of the tip of your finger. Well, here, Paul is saying that in a spiritual sense, this group here that's outside of those who are saved, this is the non-remnant of Israel, they are spiritually calloused. Their souls are hardened in some sort of sense. And to prove his point, Paul actually pulls three Old Testament quotes here. He's got one from the law, one from the prophets, and one from the writings or the poetry. 
He's got one from Moses, one from Isaiah, and one from David. He's making a comprehensive point about God's activity in the lives of hardened Israel. And as we think about what hardened means as we get ready to read these verses, uh, here's a definition that you could latch on to for what it means to be hardened. This is from Doug Moo. He's written a massive commentary on Romans. His last name's Moo. I hope he didn't have a sister that went to public school because that's just setting up for disaster there. But Doug Moo said this about what it means to be hardened. A spiritual insensitivity that prevents people from responding to God or his message of salvation. A spiritual insensitivity that prevents people from responding to God or to his message of salvation. I thought that was a pretty good, succinct definition. And Paul proves this, again, from the Old Testament. So let's look at these one by one, starting with Deuteronomy 29. Let me give a little bit of backdrop before Mr. Bowman reads that for us. Israel, like all people, in their natural state, as they're born into this world, all Jews and all people, they're unable to understand spiritual things. 1 Corinthians talks about this. We covered it back in chapter 2. That was at least a decade ago, right? Now, 1 Corinthians 2 talks about how the carnal mind can't grasp what is spiritual. And so we need the Spirit of God to work in our lives that we can, we can put, put these things together, that we can grasp and understand spiritual words. The Spirit of God does this miraculous work in our lives that we're not able to do in our natural state. Well, the Jews were they're the same. Just because they're Jewish, that doesn't make, make them non-sinners at birth. They're sinners. They're fallen like everybody else. And what's being talked about in Deuteronomy 29 is particularly Yahweh's saving acts in Israel, redeeming them out of Egypt. If you've read through those first few books of the Old Testament, you know that over and over and over again, God tells them to remember, I rescued you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Remember, pass this on to your children. Well, they're unable in their natural state, they're unable to grasp the significance of this. These children whose parents went through this or grandparents went through this, they have to grasp how significant this is, that God saved them from Egypt. And so in the middle of this message to Israel, a long message, Moses says in Deuteronomy 29, 2 through 4, that Israel doesn't understand the significance because God hasn't given them the understanding. So let's read it. Deuteronomy 29, 2 through 4. So why didn't they understand the significance of God's saving acts in their nation? They were born with a sin nature, loving their sin more than anything else, loving themselves more than anything else. And until God actively grants people eyes to see and ears to hear, they can't see and they can't hear. That includes 
Jews. Okay? Don't, don't think that they're in some special category. So all the way back in Deuteronomy 29, that was the case. And it continued. Isaiah 29, verse 10. Was that you, Mike? Okay, Isaiah 29, 10. Go ahead and read that one. What is God actively doing in Israel in Isaiah's day? Causing them to be sleepy, causing them to be blind. Wow, isn't that something? God actively doing this? Hardening, hardening people. Uh, this isn't a, uh, an activity that God did just in the past either, by the way. As Romans teaches us, it goes on in the present. God is actively doing such a thing in the lives of people today, and it's going to happen in the future. That's, I wanted, uh, Joseph, I think you have 2 Thessalonians too, right? I wanted us to consider this passage, because this is in the future. Listen to what God's going to do when Antichrist is revealed. Go ahead and read verses 8 to 12, Joseph. Okay, so we'll pause there. This is, again, talking about a future generation. But people not receiving the love of the truth so as to be saved. Again, that's man's natural disposition. It's the way it's always been since the fall. Man's natural disposition. And in accordance with that natural disposition, what happens next? Verse 11. Go ahead, Joseph. All right. God will send upon them a deluding influence. For what purpose? So that they may believe what is false. That was 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 to 12. So that's, a, that's an amazing thought. You know, some people, okay, it's like, well, why do people not receive Jesus? Well, it's because they, they reject him, and because they reject him, then God hardens them. Some say, well, it's because God hardens them, and because God hardens them, they reject them. Well, it's really not an either-or, one before the other. It's kind of a both-and here, isn't it? At the same time, in every step, it's, they're together. Unless they're chosen by God's grace. This is what we're learning in Romans 11. The remnant in Israel exists because of God's gracious choice. Chapter 11, verse 5. And so everybody who's saved, whether Jew or Gentile, it's because of God's gracious choice, for no other reason, for God's gracious choice. Okay, one more uh, place that Paul quotes is Psalm 69. You got that, Rex? Psalm 69, 22 and 23. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their back be bent forever. Wow. So this is exactly what Paul quotes in Romans 11, 9 and 10. And it seems to me that we would have a hard time trying to figure out an exact correlation for all these things. Let their table become a snare. Well, what, what's the table that Paul sees? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but 
We do know that the main point, I think, is found in verse 10, that their eyes are darkened. It's something that God can do among people is darken their eyes so they can't see. That's what we've been seeing over and over again. And Paul is saying, just like David said of his enemies, probably some of them were his fellow countrymen, Israelites, but certainly other nations, just as David said of his enemies, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes see not, let their bat, their, uh, may they bend their backs forever. The same thing, may it go on in Israel among those who are hardened because that's what God does in the lives of those who are not chosen. He's active in everybody's lives. He's active in everybody's lives, either to save or to harden. That's what we're seeing here in Scripture, okay? That sounded exciting. Those those birthday things? (laughs) I wonder if there's cake. (laughs) All right, uh, so we'll do some questions now. Steve. 22 and 23. Psalm 69, 22 and 23. Other thoughts or questions on this concept? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because anything outside of the truth fits into that category of diluting influence. And the only way you get out of that diluting influence of the world, the lies of the world, or the darkness that exists in the world, is if God, in His power, picks you up and transfers you into His kingdom, right? Yeah, that's it. Mark. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, right. It's like, because um, when we think of blinded, blind people know that they're blind. They know that other people can see, right, out in the real world, right? They know they have an impairment. So when we talk about spiritual blindness, maybe a, a, a more helpful illustration for us is to think, does a fish understand water? Does a fish really understand water and what's going on outside of the water? Well, all a fish is known as water, right? And look at all these other fish in the water, and we're just in the water. And understanding that there's life outside of that is just, of course, incomprehensible to even the smartest of those animals, the dolphin, right? Just, I'm sure it doesn't understand. And, and there is that sense in which, yeah, if you're, if you're hardened and in darkness, you just don't understand this. You just you can't. You have to experience it to know. Dean. And I was just talking about God giving, giving them the spirit of stupor. And some of the other verses we looked at talk about Satan's words, assuming that's coming from him and God allowing it. Well, God is actively sending the deluding influence. Now, we have an example, um, First, Second Kings. Oh, okay, yeah, so we have, we have the, the truth, of course, that the God of this age is actively blinding, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. But there's an example in the Old Testament, First or Second Kings, where God wanted a king to be deceived. But God doesn't lie. He can't lie. So he asks, who's going to go lie to that king? And there's a spirit that said, oh, I'll do it. 
sends him. And there he goes. Is that what's going to happen in the future? Is that what's happening now? That's largely mysterious, isn't it? So, but that's one instance of a possibility there. Stanley. Question. Chapter 11, verse 26. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there soon, but go ahead. <laughs> we'll be there in three weeks. Yes. Yeah. That's a fair summation. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's actually where I'm going in my notes. I'm, I was actually going to go to 25. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, while we're, so while we're there, I want to make a note about this hardening. And I think that we, un we understand this so far from, the, from what Paul's explained. But just to make clear, Romans 11:25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So when, it, when he's talking about Israel in that verse, wh which group is he talking about? One, two, or three? When, when he says the word Israel. Yeah, group one, right? So he's saying that there's a, a partial hardening, which means not all of Israel has been hardened. And I think we understand that. Paul's, we've been talking about that, okay? But what he doesn't give us is what would be very interesting to know are percentages, right? He doesn't tell us. And he doesn't say how these are going to ebb and flow throughout the different ages of history. <laughs> Always 10%, is that what you said? Oh, that's funny. It's not. But that's funny. Go ahead, Stan. Yes, the fullness of the Gentiles. Hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness mm -hmm. of the Gentiles has come in. Yep. How's the, the Gentiles affecting We're Verse 11, I think, is going to help answer that. Okay? So, because that's the verse we're going to end with today, and I think next week, Tyler, will you start with that verse? Are we going to overlap a little bit? Because there's a lot, there's just a lot to say. But, in verse 11, it, it, it talks about this, Stan. It says, 11, <clears throat> 11, if I, I say then, they, who's they? One, two, or three? One. They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their, who's their? Well, good, one, group one. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Okay, so we, we need to talk about what that means. But what we can recognize through the, you know, we dip down to verse 25 there for a moment, is that this partial hardening that's happening, and again, we don't know, it, it definitely seems to be the large part. The, the partial hardening that's happening in Israel is not done arbitrarily by God. There is great purpose in the hardening. He doesn't just willy-nilly pick and choose. He has great purpose, not only in those he chooses, but he's got great purpose in the hardening of individuals, too. So there's that we need to recognize. There's purpose, because there's this idea in verse 11 uh, of jealousy that we'll talk about in a moment. But we also recognize that it's not permanent. This whole concept that group three exists within Israel, that's not permanent. 
Verse 25 says that the partial hardening has happened until a certain time. Until a certain time. There is coming a time when the partial hardening will no longer happen in Israel. So, you need to recognize two things in Paul's argument here. One, there's purpose. And two, it's not final. It could have, it could have been assumed by believers that, well, God's just totally done with this nation. Is that the case? And Paul says, no. Well, but let me tell you, there's a partial hardening going on until a certain time. That's what he's explaining. They might think that the nation forfeited over her place in God's program and that God's done with her. But to use Paul's words, may it never be. May it never be. Tyler. Well, that system of God partially hardening or hardening part of Israel, that's um, temporary. But for those who he has hardened, that hardening is eternal, right? Yes, and that's what we'll see. In, uh, I'm going to talk about in verse 11 when it talks about stumbling and falling. So the nation stumbling is different, and we will. There's a difference between the nation stumbling and individual stumbling, okay? There's a difference. And, and the nation falling and individuals falling. So let's, um, let's look at verse 11, the start of it. If you compare it with verse 1, so same chapter, verse 1 of the same chapter, you can see that the questions are very similar. Verse 1 says, God has not rejected his people, has he? Verse 11 says, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? It's the same kind of idea that's being asked in both questions, and that's why Paul gives the same response to both. May it never be. They're, he's answering the question, is the nation of Israel done for good? Or is this the end of their history? May it never be. This isn't how it ends, Paul is saying. This isn't how it ends for them. And so from this point forward in chapter 11, we are now looking toward the future. Paul has explained what's going on in the present, in Israel. And now he's going to be talking about the future in, in most cases. We got this stuff with the, the lump, uh, the branches, all that stuff. We'll talk about that in the coming weeks. But a lot of this is going to be about the future. And I want to talk about there are basically three major views that are taken in the evangelical church about the future for Israel. And so I'm going to throw these out there. We're not going to spend a, a ton of time on these, but I'm just going to give you these three perspectives, okay? The first one is the view that we take at this church, that there would be a total ethnic conversion of Jews and a national restoration in accordance with Old Testament promises, a literal understanding of Old Testament promises. So, so first view, the one that we state here, there would be a total ethnic conversion of Jews and a national restoration of Israel in accordance with a literal fulfillment of Old Testament promises. View number one. View number two is that there will be a mass ethnic conversion of, of Jews. So people in that camp would say, okay, yeah, I see. There are going to be a lot of Jews who are going to get saved at the end of the age. So that, that part we maybe have a slight disagreement. It just depends on a bunch of different things. But where we have the major disagreement with this group is they say, Israel at the end of the age will be grafted into the church because the church owns the spiritual fulfillment of Old Testament promises. So the church now is true Israel, owning the spiritual fulfillment of Old Testament promises, not the literal fulfillment, but the spiritual fulfillment of Old Testament promises. And, I mean, you could say, yeah, it's the literal fulfillment because they were spiritual promises, and that's a whole different hermeneutics conversation, but the spiritual fulfillment of Old Testament promises, and Israel is going to be grafted back into the church. So there won't be a national restoration of Israel 
in God's program, according to this view. And uh, they don't see the Old Testament promises as being literal in the same sense as we do. So that's where we would have a disagreement. And the third view says there will be no mass restoration or conversion of Israel. I actually read uh, one guy this week, he's a Greek professor at Southern Seminary, who said, God never promised to save all Israel. So we would just have a major disagreement with that statement, okay? But these are three views within the evangelical church where we get kind of some conflict and some tense moments as we try to figure out what Romans 11 and other passages are saying, okay? But again, what we teach here is that there will be a total ethnic conversion of Jews and a national restoration of Israel in accordance with a literal fulfillment of Old Testament promises. We're all still here. Okay, good. So, let's continue to look at verse 11. I wanted to lay those out and then let you know, okay, it's view number one that I'm going to be teaching here. But as Paul says, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? He says, may it never be. And this phrase, may it never be, is a strong phrase. I found it interesting that the phrase, may it never be, it's found 15 times in the New Testament. 14 are Paul. And 10 of those 14 are in Romans. This is a a part of how he argues for things in the book of Romans. He asks these questions that he thinks they're going to ask, they're going to wonder. And he's asking them rhetorically. You know that because he's saying, may it never be. There's an obvious answer here. There are other places in the New Testament in Galatians and 1 Corinthians where Paul uses this kind of terminology uh, just to give you an idea of how strong this response is, may it never be. In 1 Corinthians, he asks them, shall I take the members of my body and join them to a prostitute? May it never be, okay? That's a strong no, right? A clear no. Is Christ a minister of sin, he asks in Galatians. There's a very strong negative in response to that, right? May it never be. So that's the phrase that we're, we're looking at here. And Paul is clearly teaching that God is not done with the Jewish people as a whole, okay? When he says, they did not stumble so as to fall, again, it seems as though pretty clear to me he's speaking of this first group, group number one. But they did have a transgression. The nation collectively rejected their Messiah, didn't they? That's a major transgression. And because of that transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. One of the primary evidences for why we see Paul as referring to group one is because he's contrasting this group with the Gentiles as a whole, Jews and Gentiles. And because of the sin of, generally speaking, the Jewish nation, salvation now has come to the Gentiles. And the purpose is to make Israel jealous. Their stumbling into transgression has resulted in an expansion of covenant promises. Go back to, uh, if you go back to, again, Jeremiah 31, we looked at this last week, Dean led us there last week, or Ezekiel 36, 37, where God promises a new covenant. Who's he making those promises to in those passages? Good, yeah. Yeah, you guys should be pretty confident about that. I mean, who, who was God talking to through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, right? National Israel. His people at that time. And he promised his people at that time, this is what's going to happen. There are days coming, and I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And here's what's going to happen in that new covenant. The Spirit's going to dwell inside. Their sins are going to be forgiven. 
They're going to have a right relationship with God totally, completely, thoroughly. Are we in that new covenant? Oh, good, good. Yeah, yeah, we are. Yeah, go, go read Hebrews 7, 8, 9. Go read the book of Hebrews. We're in that new covenant. We take communion, right? This is the blood of the covenant, okay? We recognize that we're in the covenant, but the promise wasn't originally made to us, was it? And so we see an expansion of these promises, these covenant promises, through the transgression of Israel. By their transgression, salvation, and even you could wrap in with that, the, the promises of the new covenant have come to the Gentiles. They're available to the Gentiles. John chapter 1, Jesus came to his own, and what happened? But to all who believed in him, he gave them the right to become? Very good. So you are children of God here today, aren't you? Yes, we're grafted in. That's it. At that time, we consider the those that were converted from the ethnic Jews to be the remnant. Yes. Yep. Yep. That's it. And and even today, we could say there remains a remnant of Israel, right? Joseph, did you have a thought or question a moment ago? That's Ezekiel, more clearly, yeah. But yeah, Ezekiel 36, 37, right in there, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and we recognize he was saying he would remove Israel's heart of stone and give Israel a heart of flesh. But we also recognize that's what he did in our lives too, right? So there was that expansion of that promise that includes you and me. Okay. Dean. Yes. Yeah, how rare, especially in Payson, Utah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's rare pretty much anywhere, but especially here. Okay, I need to, I got, I got six or seven minutes, so I need to go a little bit quicker here. Uh, the idea, though, to kind of sum up some points, as a whole, thinking of group one here, as a whole, the nation lost the kingdom, the Messiah, the land. They stumbled. They stumbled. They transgressed. They rejected their Messiah. I talked about this, was it last week's sermon or the week before? Jesus' parable with the vineyard. Those who killed the son of the vineyard owner. He said, I'm taking it away and giving it to another people. So Israel lost these things. And the individuals, this was going back to Tyler's question earlier, the individuals who have stumbled and fallen and have died in their sins, they're going to be judged accordingly, aren't they? They get no free pass on the other side because they're ethnic Jews. They're held accountable just like everybody else from every nation. So individuals stumble and fall. But the nation as a whole has stumbled, not as to fall, though, have they? May it never be. Because there is still an aspect where the nation, the, the ethnic group that God has established through Abraham, they still have a role in God's program is what Paul is teaching here. The nation will be restored and the promises will be fully realized among them, enjoying their Messiah, enjoying their kingdom, enjoying the land. Okay. So let's drop down to verses 25 to 29. Again, we'll be here in three or four weeks, something like that. 
Let me read to you verses 25 to 29, and just consider this at, at play. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, and He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And look at what he says in verse 28. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, this is the same group that will be saved, they currently are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Our current enemies, the church's current enemies, this is how Romans 11 talks about the Jews. Israel is the enemy of the church right now. The church's current enemies will be saved and be restored in accordance with Old Testament prophecies. That will happen in the future. But in the meantime, God is purposing jealousy. We see in 11.11, God is purposing jealousy among the Jews with this expansion of the covenant, of the new covenant, this expansion of salvation promises. And so I'll end with this thought. We've got just a few minutes here. Why? Why does God want to make Israel jealous? We know what it's like in our human relationships when we try to make someone jealous. It's not very righteous, is it? We usually don't have very many righteous motives when we're doing that, being manipulative. Well, what is God doing? Turn with me back to Deuteronomy. Keep your finger here, but turn back with me to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32, we'll look at verses 19 through 22. Because this is not a new thing that God is doing among the Jews. Just like with the hardening, making them jealous is something that He's done for a long time as He has willed for it. Deuteronomy 32, starting at verse 19. Would someone read 19 to 22? Deuteronomy 32, 19 to 22. Jim raised his hand. Thanks, Jim. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn in the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. All right, so it's describing, leading up to that portion, it's describing Israel's sin. Israel grew fat and kicked sinful, idol-worshiping people. Again, thinking of group number one. Broad brush, speaking of Israel, they have gotten into a very bad state. Now, God has always had a remnant, hasn't he? He's always had a remnant in Israel. But he's looking at them in Deuteronomy 32 and saying, you've grown fat and kicked with all your idols. He's provoked. And what is the result of his provocation? Verse 21, he will make them jealous, jealous with those who are not a people. And we see just another way that God's doing that with the Gentiles and building His church, provoking 
Israel to jealousy. God has a purpose in this, not to write them off, but as a means to his end, as a means that they may be saved. I mean, that's Paul's argument in Romans 11, that he wants to be used of God, that they may be saved. And there's coming a day when all Israel will be saved. And we don't have, is, we don't have uh, details on how all this works, do we? So how exactly are they being made jealous? I, it seems to me the most rational or sensible explanation is as they see Gentiles enjo- enjoying their promises, as they see Gentiles being forgiven of their sins, given assurance of salvation, that there's a jealousy or an anger that comes up within them, that God works within them so as to save some of them. It's kind of like, uh, you know, we give our kids lots of toys and sometimes our kids don't appreciate all their toys until they see someone else playing with one of their toys. Christmas morning, you get 10 toys, and, you know, the one they like the least is just sitting there until one of the siblings picks it up. Hey, hey, that's mine. Provoke to jealousy. Provoke to jealousy. It seems like that's a sensible explanation, but we don't have all the how does this work. But how are God's Gentiles... The, one, the Gentiles that God has saved, how are we to consider this? First thing, God's nation is not irretrievable. Okay? They have not stumbled so as to fall. God, God's Gentiles need to recognize that God's nation is not irretrievable. God's able to restore them again. He's able to graft them back in again, isn't it? As Paul says. You might have the thought, well, God, so God's just using us? Maybe you've said to a former boyfriend or girlfriend, you used me? (laughs) Well, in a sense, that's what God's doing all the time with everybody and everything, right? That's what God's up to in the world. But don't think of, well, you're a second-class child of God, and you're just used to provoke the real children of God. Don't think that. Do not think that. God chose you by His grace He caused you to be born again to a living hope. He adopted you into His family. You are just as much a child of God as anybody has ever been. So don't ever let your mind go to, well, He's just using His church. Some people have said that the church is like God's plan B. He came to Israel. Here's your Messiah. Well, Israel rejected Him. Well, plan B, Rex. We are not plan B. Okay, I I like the way S. Lewis Johnson phrased this, and I'll I'll close with this. S. Lewis Johnson said, The transgression of Israel, spoken of here in verse 11, the transgression of Israel had as a designed result the salvation of the Gentiles that in turn was to lead to the return and restoration of Israel to divine favor. God's plan. God's sovereign, gracious, faithful, covenant-keeping plan. Okay? Not plan B. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your holy word. We thank you so much for the promises that we have that you will keep. You've given them to us, and you are a faithful God, and we trust and hope in you. God, please give us a, a great desire to serve and honor you the way that you've called us to, as we consider today the purity of the church as we handle the Word of God. God, give us uh, just a higher sense of what it means to look into your Word with a heart to obey that you may be honored among us. 
In Jesus' name, amen.